In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about when to pull profits out of your business, the balancing act of building features versus integrating, how to market a podcast, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 417. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. So where this week, sir? Well, I talked a little bit about this at MicroConf Europe, but uh, I am getting used to my uh, CPAP machine, which is a, it's a device to basically help prevent your airways from closing when you sleep. So I had a diagnosis for a, a sleep apnea about three or four weeks ago, and they said, yeah, that's uh, not looking good. So basically sleep apnea is uh, your body decides to like stop breathing in the middle of the night. So various times I would just wake up and be gasping for air just because my brain would freak out and just because it wasn't get enough oxygen because I stopped breathing. So anyway, this machine is supposed to uh, help prevent that, which will improve my sleep presumably. And it's actually going fairly well so far. So I'm cautiously optimistic about it, but it's been a, an ongoing issue for a while. So I'm glad that it seems like it's uh, headed in the right direction, but it's probably still too early to tell. Sure. And that's, it like straps on your face, right? It's kind of like, looks like an oxygen mask or a scuba thing. I guess it's on the front of it, right? Yes. I sound like Darth Vader. <laughs> do, do you? That's interesting. Well, a little bit. I mean, it's not that bad. Like uh, when I breathe, like I can hear it because the thing's like right on my face, but it's not so bad. But if I talk, obviously it sounds like it's Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's got to be tough to get used to because if you roll over in the middle of the night, there's a, a cord or some type of, of hose attached to it, right? Yeah. Yep. So I don't know. It's like I said, it's, it's taken some getting used to, but yeah, it seems to be helping so far. So I don't know, like I said, cautiously optimistic. Yeah. It's always tough with these types of chronic things that you just try for, you deal with for years until at some point you realize you're like the frog in a boiling pot of water where it's like, this is, I've let this go way too long. I had that with my shoulders, neck and back to where I got to where the point where every day I was just in pain all day every day, no matter what I did. And eventually, you know, Sherry was basically like, this is dumb. Like you're 30, this was when I was like 38, right? You're 38 years old, like figure this out, you know? So she had me start doing yoga and then she's like, go to a, a deep tissue, like almost acupressure. I would say it's a massage, but it's not like I'm going to go to the spa and get a massage. It's like a medical like intervention massage where it like hurts a lot. I started doing those twice a week and then I went down to once a week and eventually I fixed it. It took me like six months but eventually I fixed it and it's like, wow, I can't believe I let that go on that long. And that's that seems to be what what's happening, right? Is you've struggled with this kind of stuff on and off and tried different solutions for years. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it has been going on for years and it's just gotten progressively worse. And this past year, it's just like, I can't, I, I almost can't even function. <laughs> to, you know, it's just not getting enough sleep. The sleep therapist I saw, he's like, hey, I need you to track your sleep for like two weeks. And I'm like, well, I've been writing down like, you know, whether I got a good night of sleep or not. And he's like, no, here's a official chart or whatever. And he's like, fill this out every single day for two weeks and like log how much you actually sleep. And I was looking at it and I'm just like, I'm only getting like 15 or 20 hours of sleep a week. It was, it was bad. I didn't think it was that bad, but it was, it was pretty bad. Wow. That's weird. So you were literally like, just to be clear, you were sleeping from like midnight to three in the morning or something. And then you were up, it was like insomnia type stuff where you're just up when you didn't want to be. It was a combination of that and also going to sleep and then waking up and then not being able to get back to sleep. 
And it's like, you know, and of course all the advice says like, well, if you wake up in the middle of the night, like don't get out of bed because that'll like disrupt your body. And and then of course there's the conflicting advice, which says exactly the opposite, which is like, oh, if you're not tired, like, you know, get out of bed and change your environment. And it was just, I mean, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit with like 15 or 20 hours, but anyway, yeah, it was, it was just awful. Like it just was not, I don't think there was a, any night where I was getting more than I think five or six hours of sleep. Oh yeah. Boy, that's tough, man. I'm not able to function like that. So how about you? How are things going with you? They're good. I just got back from Croatia 48 hours ago, and I forget every time how much I love flying west <laughs> and how leaving here, leaving Minneapolis and going to Europe is so hard, you know, because it, it, is, it is 10 times harder in terms of getting the sleep and the time change and all that crap. And especially we had three kids with us. They did great. They're good travelers. But still, it's just a pain. You're, you're tired at the wrong times. And Flying West, it's like a it's like a dream, man. We got back here. We, we just had to stay up a few hours. Then we got a good night's sleep. We all woke up at four in the morning, which is not a bad thing. Like we got up, we had an early breakfast. And then, you know, the next day we all slept till six in the morning. So now I'm like hoping to try to keep the schedule because I, I tend to be tired in the morning and I sleep later than I want to, 7.30, 7.40. But it's been great getting a jump on the day and it like it's like built in. So I need to remember this, that the, the way back is always easier. Yeah, I experienced the same thing. I got back. I'm trying to remember what time I got back. I got back at like nine or 10 o'clock at night because I'd left it, I think around one or something like that. And then I had three hops and went through the capital of Croatia and then over to London Heathrow. And I made the mistake of getting in the wrong line. I apparently missed one of the signs. So I'm, I'm sitting in this line and it's like going through customs. And I'm just like, I'm not sure that I'm in the right spot. Like, shouldn't I just be transferring from one airplane to another? Like, why do I have to go through customs here? And so I asked somebody and I'm glad I did because I was going to end up in England <laughs> and like, I would, would not have, like, I, oh, I would have boy. had to go all the way back through security. It was, just, it would have been bad. And I was at the wrong terminal too. So <laughs> yeah, that makes it tough. Cool. Well, I'm glad you dodged that bullet. Mm -hmm. Other thing I want to mention is microconf Las Vegas is March 24th through the 28th of 2019. And that's growth edition is the first two days or the first two and a half days, and starter, the latter two days of that. We're going to be putting tickets on sale here in the next, I'll say, three to four weeks. If you're interested in coming, you're going to want to go to microconf.com, click on growth or starter edition, and then enter your email. There's a drip pop-up widget in the lower right, and you will be on the list to get tickets. We've been selling out every year, at least with growth. I guess started didn't sell out last year, but you're going to want to be on that list to, to get tickets early. Yeah, there's also a place, it's a description on the website. If you're not sure which which edition of the conference you should go to, there's some descriptions there that will kind of help you decide. And if you have any questions, obviously just drop an email to us in the very near future and we'll help you out. So today we are answering some listener questions. We got another a nice crop of them in while we were in Europe. First one is a voicemail and he's asking about what to do with profits once your business is successful. Hey, Mike and Rob. My name is Joe. I'm a solopreneur like a lot of your listeners, but unlike them, I'm in the uh, free-to-play mobile game industry rather than uh, B2B SaaS, but a lot of what you guys talk about still applies. Um, I've been listening to you for five years now, um, so thank you for all the episodes. My question is about what to do with profits when the business has been very successful. Up to now, I've been treating the profits as capital for future runway for when the business takes a downturn. 
but the business has been doing well for a few years now. And I feel like my family should take part in the success of the business as well, rather than use all of the profits just for future runway to pay myself. So I was wondering what you guys think about that and if you have any advice. Thanks. Bye. In addition, Joe clarified, he said, I'm wondering if it makes sense to do something like like have half the profits go to future runway and the other half go into savings for the family or maybe increase my salary, quote unquote, every year because the business is doing so well so that I have more money to spend on and save for family things. So I like this question. We've never, I don't think we've ever gotten a question like this and I, I like it and I have a lot of thoughts on it actually. Well, do you want to go first? I've got plenty of thoughts on my own too, so. Okay, well, yeah, let me, let me go first on this one. I think there, there's a traditional... There's some traditional business thinking. So when I when I first got out of college, I worked for uh, a construction company, electrical construction, and the guy who ran that company had been running it since the 50s. And his philosophy was: you take the profits at the end of the year, you invest half of them back in the business. So he kept them as retained earnings, is what they're called on your on your balance sheet. And then he took the other 50 percent and he split that in half, right? So now you're talking 25 and 25. He took 25% for the owners of the company. And, you know, originally it was just him, but then there were four or five, six different owners, executives who own pieces. And then the other 25% basically share with the employees. And it was either an end of the year bonus or they would like buy us. I worked there a couple of years, like they bought us a brand new Dell computer. This was in the late nineties. It was actually, you know, several thousand dollars or they would sometimes give cash bonuses and that kind of thing. Now, Joe's probably not not in that situation. It doesn't sound like he has a bunch of employees, but that's one way to think about it. So his half and half idea, I think is is interesting. I think that's one approach you could take. The other approach is more of what what I've done with with my apps and my companies is have a number that I want in the bank. It's kind of like your emergency fund, right? Like in personal finance, you say, the first thing you do once you're out of debt is you save up three to six months of living expenses and you put those in a, a money market or a savings account. You don't touch them. And that's for when your car breaks down or you have to move you know, quickly or I don't know, you just, just if anything goes wrong. I, f- I believe in the same thing for a business. And you'll have to figure out what that number is. But I remember like with Hittail, I believe I wanted like thirty or $40,000 in the bank. And then everything above that, I started putting into a different account. Now, some of it I pulled out for personal stuff and others I put in to invest into other products. When Drip started getting bigger, that number got a lot more, right? It was like 100 grand would only cover payroll for a few months. So that that number then had to go up to 100, 150, 200. And you're gonna have to figure out where that comfort is. So that'd be the other thing is is you don't need to necessarily split it 50-50. You could just have a threshold where it's like, hey, everything beyond that, I just basically take out for, for the family. Those are my thoughts. What do you think, Mike? So I think there's there's my answer to this, and then there's also I'll say some subjectiveness that you would have to run past like a, a tax attorney for this. So I agree with you that having a number in mind that you want to have in the bank at, at all times as kind of a, a cash cushion for the business is a great idea. And depending on how many employees you have and how much what your regular expenses are on a monthly basis for your family are, like that's going to factor into that. So whatever that number happens to be, let's say that it's $60,000 and you're paying yourself $10,000 a month just for sake of simple math. You get that in the bank and then above that, that's when you have to start looking at, I'll say tax advantages, because one of the things he had mentioned was paying himself salary. And from talking to my CPA, for example, his advice, and again, this is not general tax advice for everyone, talk to your own, but he said, take your salary and actually cut it in half 
and pay yourself half of it as salary, the other half as an owner's dividend. And essentially what that does is it pays all the FICA and all the other stuff on taxes, and it's a reasonable salary. And then the rest of it comes as an owner's dividend, and it's taxed at a different rate. So I would definitely look in, like talk to a CPA and see what you should actually do, like beyond once you get beyond that cash cushion. Yes, that's a great tip. I just want to chime in and say my accountant has told me the same thing, not tax advice, but you want to be able to justify a salary. So you don't want to pay yourself a dollar a month, right? Because then the IRS is going to come in and say, well, you're the CEO of a small software company. You should be making at least, you know, 60, 70, 80K, depending on where you live. As long as you can justify that, though, if you keep it as low as you can, you will maximize on your taxes. So I I like that. that. I think increasing salary is probably not what you want to do in this case. The other thing you could do is look for planning for the future in terms of like what like what you can invest that money in in terms of either, you know, like a SEP IRA or various investments to basically for retirement. I would definitely look at those. I would probably avoid, again, not tax or legal advice, I'd probably avoid keeping a lot of cash in the business beyond what you're comfortable with because let's say that the business got sued, for example, or something happens. Like if that money is in the business, it's considered a business asset. And it's not to say that the opposite can't happen because if you get in a car crash, then they come after you personally and then they're suing you for like the money that's in your bank account. So like there's different ways of looking at that risk profile, but those are the, I, I guess, my general thoughts on it. But I, I would be cautious about just dumping it all directly into quote unquote salary. There's other ways to, I'll say, pull money out of the business and ease up any sort of financial burden on your family or just make it a more comfortable life. Yep. I think that's good advice. So to recap, I think 50-50 is totally reasonable. I think just having a, a kind of a maximum threshold of an emergency fund is is another reasonable approach. And it sounds like both you and I vote don't don't increase your salary unless that's something you want to do because it sounds like you're going to pay more taxes on it, right? You pay the FICA and all that other stuff. Oh, and I, you know what, Mike? I like that you brought up personal liability and business liability. I think in general, owning a business is you're going to have a lot more liability than on the personal side because you're right. You could hit someone with your car. The odds of that are just less than your business screwing someone's launch up and then they sue you for the for damages but on the and on the on the business side you have you should have that llc or that s corp or whatever that protects you on the personal side if you don't have a personal umbrella policy this is going a little off on a tangent but i just want to do my little spiel here a personal umbrella liability policy for a million or two million dollars is very very inexpensive and as soon as you have means as soon as you have enough that someone could sue you and and you're worth enough that it's worth suing you i think everyone should have one Um, i believe that i had a million dollar umbrella policy by the time we owned a few houses in LA in my, I'd say my late twenties, early thirties, and we had a million dollar umbrella policy. And I believe it was like $300 a year. And that was just if someone hurt themselves at our house or they decided that, you know, we did get in that car accident, but I had enough money at that point where it's like, well, I don't want to lose this several hundred thousand dollars of my net worth. And it was worth 300 bucks. As you get more money, you need to increase that, right? You need a $2 million or $3 million umbrella policy. But that's just a little, a little side piece of advice that, that I think helps me sleep at night. And I think that at the end of the day, that's exactly what he's asking is like, you know, how do I sleep better at night with the the finances that I have and how do I deal with this? So thanks for the question, Joe. That uh, was a good one. Our next question is a response to our response to a question in episode 415. So in 415, Chris Palmer wrote in and he asked a question about 
how many pre-sales do I need to do to validate an idea? And you and I in the past have kind of thrown around 30. I mean, that's the number Jason Cohen used. And so that's kind of what I latched onto. And you and I have battered that around. I mean, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 40 or whatever. But we kind of said that. And Chris said, look, I'm selling into the enterprise. And so maybe I can get three people to verbally commit, but that's going to be about it. And so you and I talked back and forth. And Nick, Nick Mayer wrote in, he said, hi, Robin, Mike, great show. Regarding the question from Chris Palmer on the number of customers required to validate an enterprise concept, we validated our idea by pitching a deck of five slides to five enterprise customers. Commitment in principle and strong interest from three to five companies was enough for us to move forward. Next, we bootstrapped into it by finding a willing development customer, quote unquote development, right? Someone who's willing to work with them to help us get the product right in exchange for a low one-time lifetime license fee. We asked for a letter of intent on the condition that we could demonstrate we could build a working MVP at our expense. So letter of intent, you and I had talked about that a little bit. We built the MVP with 15,000 pounds of our own savings from separate consulting income. The MVP's success and the letter of intent led to an upfront commitment of 30,000 pounds towards funding a full V1 paid in stages to de-risk it for both parties. We agreed 10,000 pounds on the start, 10,000 pounds on delivery to user testing, and 10,000 pounds on user sign-off. We were live nine months after the MVP. We had a great reference customer, which got us going. We are now installed at eight and growing steadily. The one to two year runway you need to get traction in enterprise is tough, but I'm not sure it's harder than B2B SaaS. It just needs a different funding approach. I hope this is helpful to Chris and others in the space. And so that was that was Nick Mayer's uh, response. He's from Atticus Associates Limited. And totally appreciate that. Like, I think that's great insight. And I love, I want to point out, like, I love when our community gets involved like this, that you and I had opinions and we had thoughts about it. And, and I think I listened back and they were totally reasonable, but like Nick has actually done it. And he has another point of view and something, you know, I never even thought of, of pitching it as a slide deck. I actually think that's a really good idea. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I actually met Nick at MicroConf Europe this year and uh, had dinner with him. And he kind of talked a little bit about what their approach had been. And, you know, I'm glad he wrote in because he explained a lot of these things to me over dinner. And it was it was fantastic listening to him and, and hearing all the different things that they did and the path that they went. And you can look at it and say, well, you've only got eight customers. What happens if one of them leaves? Because that's probably going to be a huge chunk of money. But at the same time, at the enterprise level, you're probably going to at least have some sort of heads up that they're not happy or there's problems unless the business is shutting down or something like that, or they're ripping you out and replacing you with some other vendor. But chances are good that if you got in there to begin with, you're probably going to have like an internal champion of some kind, because that's how enterprise deals tend to happen. And, you know, you're going to get at least some sort of heads up about what's going on and why they may be unhappy. Yeah. And and the little secret here is that Nick is a smart guy and Nick has been successful. And you and I sit on this podcast and we say, we, we give our best advice, right? And we give our best ideas. But sometimes when there's someone out there who has done this, they just know a little more about it. And so I appreciate Nick uh, chiming in and frankly offering to help. He actually offered to connect directly with Chris. So I connected them via email. And that's the kind of, that's why we do this, right? Like that was so stoked. I, I, I'm just super excited that the two of them will, that, that Nick may be able to give some advice to Chris that will help his business get off the ground. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to always be us. That's what we learned early on with MicroConf, right? Is I think the first year you and I felt like we had to do everything and we had to have everything in place. And if people weren't having fun, it was our responsibility. And what we've learned over the years is that like, 
no, microconf has become an entity unto itself, right? And and like the speakers show up and they deliver value in that and the attendees show up and they deliver value to one another. And that's the most important part. And you and I at this point are, are facilitators. We're involved as well, but like the conference doesn't hinge on us anymore. And I, I don't think the podcast, it does a little more because it's our voices, but like it doesn't have to, like we don't have to have all the answers, you know, when, when smart folks like like Nick and others we know can can weigh in. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, I don't want to call it a double-edged sword, but it's, I would say that it's certainly not something that we had thought would happen early on, but I'm very glad that it it has happened that way. Cause I, I think you're right. I think that microconf could in theory go on without us, but in terms of the podcast, like if either you or I left, or if like two new hosts came in or something like that, as long as the content and the tone and everything else, like the general philosophy and ethos were there, like, I don't, no, it would be that big of a deal. I mean, maybe I'm wrong there. I mean, maybe the listeners will feel very differently and we'll hear about it in the comments. But you're right. It's it's nice to be part of a community where like it, it's bigger than just the people who kind of were there early. So thanks again for writing in, Nick. Our next question is from a longtime listener. He says, hey, Robin, Mike, I'm the founder of ZoomAdmin.com. It's cloud server management software as a service. We're still in development but want to start a podcast with other founders and record our journey, sort of like startups to the rest of us. My question is, how would you go about marketing a podcast in 2018, both paid and free channels? And before you dive in on this, Mike, because I know you have thoughts on it, zoomadmin.com, when you get a chance, get an SSL certificate. It's not giving me the super bad warning, but it's not secure. And Google Chrome is kind of having a little bit of, little bit of a, a conniption on me about it. It's it's just one of those little things that if when you get to launch, you're going to want to have uh, an SSL cert. So what do you think about this, Mike? I mean, I think the first question I would say is, I mean, starting a podcast will be fun, right? But it'll be a lot of work. Do you think it's more of a distraction than it's worth? Like, is it going to help their business pound for pound, hour for hour? Are there other activities they could be doing that will help their business more than starting a podcast? You know, that's it's a hard question to answer without like the context of their business. You know, if they're they're still early on in development, like who is the podcast going to speak to? Because it seems to me like if you're going to try and start a podcast that's going to target other founders, like are you you can leverage their audiences certainly, like to help increase the number of people who are listening to the podcast. But are the types of people who end up listening to it and learning about a journey are they going to be interested in the product? And I do think that there's definitely some overlap, but I don't know how much there is. And I will, will say that I think that building a podcast is going to be a long journey. And there's going to be, yes, you can get a lot of listeners, but that doesn't necessarily translate directly to sales. So you're going to spend a lot of time and effort building this podcast and building the community and the listeners around it. But at the same time, I feel like there's probably much less overlap between the people who would listen to it and want to hear about the journey versus actually be interested in the product. So I, I do agree with you. I think it's a very valid question about like, is this the right, you know, marketing strategy that you should be trying? And I, I can't say I have a great answer for that. I mean, if you're talking to, if you had a podcast about server hosting, for example, I mean, that ties directly to the podcast. So it would be, I would say a better fit, but how interesting is that as a topic? Yep. I would agree with you. I mean, I think that's why I threw out the question I think hour for hour, there are other activities you can do that are going to help your business more. But with that in mind, like, let's put that aside for now, because that's, that's advice we have. But his real question is, how would you market a podcast in 2018, both paid and free, which I think is, is a fun idea, because I've often thought about paid promotion of a podcast and what that might look like and whether the numbers could work. 
I mean, free promotion, what are you going to do, right? It's, it's social media, it's all the socials, and then it's trying to do your best to search engine optimize yourself in the iTunes uh, podcast store or Stitcher or whatever. Those are the free channels I can think of. And I would start Googling how to do that. I mean, I can throw out ideas here. I know that, that keyword stuffing kind of works reasonably well because these search engines are not Google. The iOS or the, the iTunes podcast repository is not very intelligent in terms of how it indexes no. things. And it will, <laughs> yeah, they, they're, they're not. I mean, there's, there's a lot of search engines that are still easy to game. And this is, this is one of them. So that's, I, I would kind of dig into that if I were a new one. When I launched the podcast, I would launch it with four episodes live because as soon as someone subscribes to it for the first time, there's something about it like downloads all the available episodes up to three or four. And you obviously want, if you only have one episode, someone listens to it, they don't like it, they're going to, they're going to leave. But if, if they download all four of them, they might give it more of a chance. It's just a little bit of a hack to get more episodes onto someone's device so that they might, you know, listen through them and, and see if it gets better. Cause your first one's going to probably be kind of rough. Please don't go, don't go back and listen to episode one of this podcast. It is beyond rough. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all, all that's great advice. Another thing I would say is that you had mentioned SEO. One of the things that we do with Startups the Rest of Us is we have transcripts of all of our episodes. I would advise doing that. And it does cost money to have them done, but it is worth it in terms of just having raw content on your website that you can just go to the WordPress and just type in whatever search term you have. And it will go back through and it will search every single podcast that you have ever you know, published. In addition to that, you also have like the search engines that are coming in and indexing that content. So that is going to be helpful as well. The one other piece of advice I'd have is if you're going to start interviewing founders of other companies, like let them know when you publish the podcast and have them invite their own audience to it, uh, because that can help you to grow your own audience for the podcast. In terms of paid advertising, I think that you could do like newsletters and things like that. So find bloggers who have who are speaking to an audience that's very similar to the types of people who you want to be listening to your podcast and the, the materials aimed at and see if you can put a plug inside of their newsletter. I think that's probably the strategy I would go to because I don't know how well like a paid advertising campaign on like Google or Facebook or something like that would work. I have my doubts about it and I think it's going to be hard to track through like a conversion for that. Like, oh, did this person actually subscribe to the podcast or not? Because you're kind of doing blanket advertising at that point. You're not really doing any sort of like, it's going to be hard to measure your conversion rate and then pull them out. Like, oh, this person downloaded the podcast. Well, how do you know that? And you really can't because those things are kind of disconnected at this point. So it's, I would say it's more like billboard advertising where you're bringing out awareness to it versus like somebody signs up for an email list and then you can stop advertising to them. You have no idea whether or not they did. Yeah. Paid channels. I, you know, I like the idea of using paid channels to grow a personal brand. It would be, it'd be tough to make it work with a podcast for exactly what you said. You don't know who's taking what actions. Podcast listeners are also not that valuable compared to say email subscribers. So if I was going to try to, I view podcasts as the promotion. It, it is the thing that brings in the traffic. So driving traffic to a podcast via paid a acquisition, I just don't, I can't imagine that working, right? I could imagine in the free channels. I mean, that's the thing, right? The podcast content is what you share on on social and then that brings the folks in and then you try to get them to buy or to sign up for your email list. Those are your two typical calls to action. But to pay to drive someone to a podcast to then try to drive them into your email list or whatever, I just think it's going to be too long of a funnel. 
personal opinion, haven't tried it, but I'm guessing it would be, it's, it's not something that I would dive into, especially if you're, if you haven't launched yet, if you're an early stage product, I just, I think there are more important things for you to be worrying about. Yeah, I think I'd point to uh, Groove as an example of how to do that because they they blogged about it. And I, I do think that maybe there's some value in having a podcast where you talk about the blog article that you just published or the post or something like that. But I would treat that as secondary. I would I would look at that newsletter article that you publish on a, a weekly basis to as kind of the go-to for like, hey, people are, are following this particular story and you have them on your email list. I think the disconnect between podcast and paying user or subscriber or like an email address. It's just too much. So thanks for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question comes from Greg and he says, thanks for the show. I'm a big fan. I have a B2B SaaS that is focused on small businesses. I want to keep focusing on this segment because things have been working out really well. We have $45,000 in MRR. Congratulations, Greg. And I enjoy the frictionless sales process. Sometimes we get some larger businesses interested in our product. The problem is that they will use this system very much the same way smaller businesses do, so we don't have an enterprise plan. Additionally, most of them require more pre-sales work. For example, yesterday, one of the customers had their IT departments and it's a huge security assessment spreadsheet that would take me hours to complete. It also asks for architectural details I'm not comfortable sharing. For $100 a month, it doesn't look like this is where I should be spending my time. How should I deal with these requests and how should I avoid wasting time with enterprise types when they are not my target market? So you and I actually discussed this on stage at MicroConf Europe a little bit, but what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think that you need to look at your pricing and figure out whether or not this is a market that you want to serve at all. And maybe you've looked at it already and decided it's not worth it, uh, or you just don't want to deal with those types of customers. Or you look at that and say, well, I do want to. How can I justify charging them more in order to make it worth my time? One trick or hack that I've heard in the past is to offer an SLA with your enterprise plans. And it probably doesn't necessarily mean you need to do a heck of a lot more, but it's just like you increase the cost by $800 a month for having an SLA on it because they're going to want that. And then you can have all the documentation you need to in order to justify that as the enterprise plan. But I think beyond that, like, do you really want to have them as customers or not? That's the fundamental question that you need to answer before you start going down the road of deciding when to spend your time on that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Can you charge more to make it worth it? And if you can't, this so this used to happen to me with .NET Invoice. It was a $300 invoicing tool and it was a one-time fee. And we would get approached and someone would say, here's this massive checklist and the same stuff. And I would say, look, I'm sorry, we just aren't equipped to service requests like this. You know, this is just not something we're able to do. And some people would would be puzzled. Like, you don't want me to give you my money. I want to spend money with you. You know, and I was always like, it's $300. This isn't worth the time. Some people would just be like, okay, I totally get it. Oftentimes I had a, like a larger competitor I would recommend. I'd be like, if you want invoicing software for enterprise, go with, you know, XYZ large competitor. Um, And they're way more expensive than us, right? They were 10 or even a hundred times, frankly, more expensive than us, but they're set up to handle that. So that's probably what I do is try to figure out someone you could recommend if it's like, yeah, we aren't able, you know, you could even say like for liability reasons or legal reasons, like we aren't able to, we just are too high volume and we aren't able to do this kind of checklist architectural stuff. It's not something we're able to do, but go to this competitor and uh, they're, they're set up to do that. And then it kind of, I don't know, it ends the conversation. Our next question comes from Jonathan Sachs, and he says, I know about MicroConf and Big Snow Tiny Conf. What other similar conferences might you recommend checking out? 
so we answered this question on stage at MicroConf Europe because people were asking and uh, a couple of different recommendations that we threw out. One was Big Snow Tiny Conf because the way the question was worded was what other conferences aside from MicroConf would you recommend? We also threw out Business of Software, which I will say is aimed at a different market, but it's the type of people who would go to it tend to be part of larger businesses. And so you're talking probably 50 employees and up. I mean, there are smaller companies there as well, but generally you do not necessarily get as many founders there. So with MicroConf, it's like 90% founders, whereas with business software, it's somewhere between 10 and 25 or 30. A couple others I might recommend is uh, FemtoConf. Uh, so that is run by Benedict and Christoph, who both have come to MicroConf before. I spoke at FemtoConf this past spring. So did Dr. Sherry Walling. She spoke there as well. And that's a, a great one, especially if you kind of fit within the, you know, micropreneur slash startups, the rest of us, microconf type of community where it's all small, self-funded bootstrap founders. And there's a couple others that Brian Castle has a list that he put together. I think we'll link that up in the show notes of tiny conferences. And he lists a couple there, which I haven't heard of or don't know very much about. But three others he has listed here are Tropical SaaS in Spain, Digital Founders Camp, and then Code Cabin. Do you know of any others, Rob? Nope. I think that's a pretty good roundup. I mean, the, the bottom line, there many have come and go in the kind of the software SaaS, self-funded bootstrapper space, and most of them have not stuck around. So I, I think I think that list that you've given and, and you know is a pretty pretty good one. I mean, some other ones I've heard of but don't know a lot about are, are things like Rhodium Weekend and PeersConf and then uh, Release Notes. I like Rhodium a lot. I've spoken there. And I know the crew there and Chris Yates runs that and he's, he's one of us, you know, he like, he's very much about it for the community rather than like trying to make a bunch of money at it or something. So it's very authentic and he has crafted a, a community that I respect. It's a small conference. It's only about a hundred, 110 people. It's more about buying and selling websites and web properties and marketing them and stuff. So it's, it's related, it's tangentially related, but it's definitely different. It's not about startups and often not about like starting your own thing. And it's very much not necessarily about software. Um, it's about web websites, web properties. And some people do have, you know, web applications, but that's, yeah, that's about it. So Jonathan, hope that was helpful. I think we should wrap it up for today. Sounds good. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrestofus.com. Our theme music is excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.